Go to, with me to the book of Ezra. Ezra is where we're going to be today, and if you don't have a Bible with you and you would like to follow along with us, there are Bibles in the chair racks, and you, if you're not familiar with the Bible, can grab one of those, and we are, the book of Ezra begins on page 398. We are going to do a brief series uh, through the book of Ezra, which from my brief poll last week, uh, nobody has ever heard a series through the book of Ezra. Nobody raised their hand in either service. So if you have heard a series through the book of Ezra, congratulations. You are the exception. You are exceptional. Uh, but the, but uh, we don't spend, I'm convinced, enough time in the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament is part of our Bible. 66% of our Bible is Old Testament. Uh, Jesus seemed to think it was particularly relevant and so we want to spend more time in the Old Testament getting to know some of these rich books. So we're going to do a uh, somewhat brief five-week series through the book of Ezra. Many years ago, there was an ancient king who was celebrating a great feast. He was having a huge party, and anybody who was anybody was invited to this Party. If you were a dignitary or a celebrity or somebody in local government, you were invited to come to this gigantic party. The party started to go late into the night. The wine was flowing. Everybody was having a great time. And this king decided that he wanted to bring out some of the items from conquered nations. So he said, we should... We should continue this party, but we should drink out of like cups that are made out of pure gold. So let's do that. Let's bring out some plates that are made out of pure gold. We're not going to have any solo cups around here. We're not going to have any paper plates around here. And so they're doing this. They are having a great time. But what this ancient king didn't know in that moment was that this was the last party he ever was going to attend because there was another king present. That other king who was present was not actually at the party. That other king who was present was not even actually in the city. The other king that was present was outside the city. And he was outside the city accompanied by his entire army. And his army had traded their weapons for shovels. And unbeknownst to this king who was having this party with anybody who's anybody... They had been digging and digging and digging. You see, what they, the plan that they had come up with to, to overtake this city was to build these giant ditches, build these ditches the way to this marshy area, and then when the time is right, they were, connect, they were going to connect these ditches to a river that ran through the city. And once they connected those ditches to the river that ran through the city, the water would be diverted away from the river out into these marshy areas. And what would happen was the, the level of the river would drop significantly. Well, the night of the party was the night that this king connected those ditches to that river. The water level started to drop, the marshland started to fill up, and the soldiers were able to walk in in thigh-deep water under the wall that this river had run through, feeding the city. They were able to walk in and take over this city basically without a fight. The king that had been having this party, that had thrown this party, was captured in the middle of his party, and he was put to death that very night. This is actually a true story. It's recorded for us in a couple of different places. In the Bible, we have it in Daniel chapter 5. And then outside of the Bible, we have a historian named Herodotus who recorded some of the extra details. The Bible told us that it happened. Herodotus, a historian of that time period, tells us how it happened. But the year that this happened was somewhere around the year 539 or 538 B.C. 
The, Babylon, the king that had been having the party was a Babylonian king named Belshazzar. And the king who had dug these ditches to divert the river so that he could conquer the city of Babylon was none other than Cyrus, the king of Persia. Many of God's people, the Jews, were actually present in the city that night. And that night's events would have far-reaching complications, not just for the geopolitical scene of the world at that time, but it would have far-reaching implications for God's people who were living in Babylon at that time. But we might be asking ourselves the question, why in the world were God's people in Babylon in the first place? And if you've been around churchy stuff for any length of time or you've read the Bible, then you've got some kind of idea. But for those of you who don't know, the people who were in Babylon at that time, the Jewish people were there as exiles. And to understand exactly what brought them to that point, we have to rewind the tape and we have to go back and figure out what it was that brought them there. And the Bible tells us about this and places like First and Second Chronicles. We have the nation of Israel. It reaches its high point under the reign of David and then Solomon. God's people have been brought into the promised land. They are living there. They are prospering there. But as they're living there and as they're prospering, as often happens in days of prosperity, they were kind of forgetting God. And as they forget God, they start worshiping the gods of other nations. And so God comes to them through prophets and tells them over and over again, if you do not repent of your idolatry, if you do not turn from your wicked ways, if you do not follow me and me alone, then judgment is going to come upon you. I am going to bring judgment upon you, and that judgment is going to come in the form of a conquering nation. So this land that's yours, it's the promised land because I promised it to you, I'm going to allow another nation to come and forcibly remove you from that land. God's fuse was long on this. Years and years and years, God warns them. The people do not repent of their ways. They do not turn back to him and him alone. And so the end of 2 Chronicles tells us that after all of these warnings, God's promises of judgment begin to come true. And they, they don't just come true on one night. The night that we just talked about was the culmination of it. But the truth of the matter is, the Babylonian Empire had been knocking on their doorstep for a while now. We believe that the first people that were forcibly removed from the land probably were taken out in the year 605 BC. And that process continues until finally, in the year 586 BC, Babylonians enter Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, they burn the whole thing to the ground, they reduce the city to rubble. The prophet Jeremiah had warned the people not to resist Babylon. He had warned the people not to resist Babylon coming on because he was telling them that, that, that Babylon was God's instrument of judgment. But even when he told them not to resist, even when he told them that, that Babylon was God's instrument of judgment, that message was accompanied by a message of hope. That message of hope, Jeremiah delivers, he's the mouthpiece for God, he delivers this in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 and 11. In Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11, the Bible says this, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, that's probably 
a really familiar verse to many of us. I know the plans I have for you, plans of welfare and a future. And we say that verse over and over again, but we sometimes don't realize the context in which that verse came. God's people were staring down the barrel of a guaranteed 70 years of exile. God is telling them that a conquering nation is going to come in, demolish the whole place, forcibly remove these people from their homes and everything they've known and loved. And it is in that context that God reminds them, 70 years, but I got plans for you. My plans, my ultimate plans for you are plans of welfare and not evil. Though you are going to be lifted up and taken from everything you have known and loved, you've got a future, you have hope. Isn't that kind of God? In the midst of warning a people and warning a people and begging with the people to turn away from their ways, even in judgment, he brings mercy. What appears that God in his mercy did not even wait the full 70 years. And what the book of Ezra is going to do is it's going to pick up the story where 2 Chronicles, the ending, leaves off. The ending of 2 Chronicles tells us that Cyrus, the Persian king, comes in and conquers Belshazzar, the Babylonian king. And we're asking ourselves the question, what exactly does that event mean for the Jews who are living in Babylon? That's where the book of Ezra picks up the story. And the book of Ezra is unique. It's unique because it begins with this miraculous deliverance and it ends with a mass divorce. We don't see stuff like that coming. The book of Ezra is interesting because the person for which it is named doesn't even appear until chapter 7. There's 10 chapters in Ezra, and Ezra doesn't even show up until chapter 7. It's an interesting book because originally the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were meant to go together. They formed one book. We're going to preach it and walk through it together as as just the book of Ezra because that's the time that we have uh, before the end of the year. But Ezra and Nehemiah were originally intended to go together to tell the story of what happens next, that fateful night of the party. So I want to begin our reading then in Ezra chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 to 4 so we can start to understand the implications that night for God's people and the promises that God had made to them. Look with me in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 1. The Word of God says this, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. We just read about that guy, right? We just talked about Jeremiah. Jeremiah just delivered a message from God, said, I've got plans for you. You're going to go, it's only going to be 70 years. There's an expiration date on this. You've got plans of, I got plans of welfare. You guys have hope in a future. Okay. So Ezra knows about this. And the Bible says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." So Cyrus makes a decree, and then he puts it in writing, 
And I want you to just stop for a moment because many of us have heard this. So some of us will be hearing it are hearing this for the first time. Many of us have heard this story before, but just stop for a moment and think about the ridiculousness of this. The book of Ezra opens with Cyrus, a pagan king who has just conquered the entirety of the known world almost, saying, you know what? Everybody, go home and build a temple to your God. God's charged me to do this, and I'm going to make sure that it happens and notice that Cyrus not only, well, I'll, 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 I'll leave that for a moment. This is part of the official foreign policy of the Persian Empire. So there was a difference between the way the Babylonians did things and the way the Persians did things. The Babylonians' idea was basically, we conquer you, we take the best of all your people, and we incorporate them into our system. We leave the poorest of the poor in the land. We take other people from other conquered portions of the empire that we don't really want, and we put them in your land. We put the, you in their land, and that prevents uprisings. Because we've got all the good people. They're on our team now. Can you think of any of the, any of the good people that, that the Babylonians took? Maybe a guy named Daniel? He had some friends. These are people that the Babylonians take and use for their purposes. And that's their way of maintaining peace in the empire. Because the people who are left that care about this place are nobodies. They're nothing. They have no resources. They have nothing to do. And then there's other people brought in. They're not attached to this place. They're just transplants. That was the Babylonian foreign policy of how to kind of keep things keep things, uh, uh, uprisings and things at bay. But the Persians had a different idea. The Persians thought one of the ways to, we can kill two birds with one stone is we can keep the gods of the nations happy and keep the people of the nations happy if we allow them to restore and have their sacred sites and their places of worship. That way, it's a win-win for everybody. You get to worship your gods, so you're happy with me, even though I just conquered you. And your gods are happy with me, because the general idea of the time was that gods were localized, and so there were gods of this area, and gods of this area, and gods of this area. And so we, we appease them, we make them happy, and everybody wins. We know this is official foreign policy for the Persian Empire, because we've got their foreign policy documents. There is, uh, we're going to show you on the screen behind me, uh, something that is called the Cyrus Cylinder. To me, it looks like a piece of corn on the cob from a, different, dip, from a distance. That's a cylindrical object that's their version of a document. And if you could read it, and you can't, and I can't either, but smart people that can read that can tell that that is a statement of Cyrus's foreign policy, whereby he allows people to rebuild and maintain their sacred sites. And I just think it's interesting, I want to point out, the intersection between the Bible and history. We've got Herodotus, a historian from that era, describing in greater detail something that the Bible talks about in Daniel 5. We've got the foreign policy of Cyrus here in Ezra chapter 1, but we've got the actual thing that they wrote about their foreign policy in a museum that you could go and see today. So we've got what's going on in the geopolitical stage. We've got empires shifting around people falling out of power, other people moving into power. We've got, we've got all kinds of stuff happening, but what the Bible is doing is telling us that if we level up above the geopolitical moves that are being, ma being made, God is behind all of this. In fact, a different prophet by the name of Isaiah had prophesied that Cyrus was going to do exactly what he did. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28 says this, The Lord says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. Isn't that an interesting designation for a pagan king? The Lord says, Cyrus is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, 
she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. That's amazing. So the opening verses that we just read from Ezra is the author here saying, okay, all that stuff happened. It's be- they, they, they told us this is how it was going to be because God is behind all of it. And the next few verses here describe the response of the exiles. The response of the exiles is given to us in verses 5 to 11. So look there if you're there. The Bible says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Notice that the Bible tells us that God stirred up Cyrus's heart to bring these exiles back, to allow these exiles to go back. And then notice in our verses that we just read that once again, God stirs up the hearts, this time of some of the exiles who are there to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the walls. And here's the funny thing about all of it. Cyrus is going to pay for it. I'm going to send you back, and I'm going to pick up the tab. I'm going to pay for the whole thing. And even more than paying for it, what does it say that he returned? Remember all that stuff they were partying with the night Belshazzar died? Yep, you're going to get all that stuff back. You're going to be able to take all those sacred temple vessels that were taken from you, you're going to be able to take those back to the temple that you are restoring. Now, it's fascinating what the author is subtly doing here in this opening chapter. Do any of the details of this story ring any any bells for a parallel story that has already happened in Israel's history? And maybe you noticed that there is a story that we're seeing echoes of here. It's the story of the Exodus. Remember, the people of Israel have been under the thumb of a nation before. Remember that God grants them an Exodus, a deliverance out of that. Well, there are several features here that are parallels that that suggest to us that the author is deliberately drawing these parallels. For one thing, in both instances, in both stories, the people are told that they're going to be held captive for a particular length of time before a deliverance comes. Okay, God tells us people that in Genesis 15, they're going to sojourn for for 400 years. Of course, they're given the, 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 the timeline of 70 years. In both instances, the ruler sends the people away. They don't have to liberate themselves. So in the original Exodus, Pharaoh has been hit with plague after plague after plague when when God through Moses keeps saying, let my people go, and finally he sends them away. Well, that's exactly what Cyrus does. He doesn't hit with plague after plague, but he sends the people away. The third parallel is that both, in both instances, a stated reason for their departure is the need to go and sacrifice and worship. That's what Moses was asking Pharaoh for permission to do. And Cyrus is telling his, the, the people of Israel that they need to go and restore the altar and rebuild the foundations of the temple. Why? So they can resume sacrifice, so they can resume 
worship. The fourth parallel is that in both instances, the departing Israelites are funded by the people around them. That's exactly what happens when the people leave Egypt. Their neighbors around them give them provisions for the way. It's kind of like, please, whatever you need, take it, get out of here. The plague thing kind of hastened that. And here we have a similar thing happen. Cyrus not only decrees that he's going to pay for it, but he tells the people around them to give them things of value to help them along their way. It's hard to miss that the author here is picturing this as a second exodus. God's people are once again being delivered from their captors. Well, in the next chapter, which we're not going to have time to read together this morning, but the next chapter is almost entirely a genealogy. The whole thing is genealogical records of those who have returned, and it mentions family clans, it mentions priests, Levites, temple servants, people who were not able to prove their lineage for one reason or another. But when you get to the very end of the chapter after this big, long list of genealogical record, verses 64 and 65 tell us that it's roughly about 50,000 people who end up making the trek from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And that number's no slouch, right? That's That's a pretty good sized number of people to travel back. It doesn't begin to compare to the number of people who left in the original Exodus, which would have numbered in the millions. And it's a relatively small number. If you think about 50,000 people, that's less than a quarter of the population of Clay County. But still, 50,000 people returned to the land. And the Bible tells us in verses 68 to 70 that when they get there, The very first thing they do is sacrifice at the site of the temple. They contribute to the the rebuilding project. And then they begin to settle the city and the villages surrounding the city. And I want you to, to remember what they're going back to. They're going back to a place that got destroyed. And they're living in a time without insurance. And the people who are living there now are either the poorest of the poor who are working a subsistence living, so it's not like they've been able to build this place back up, or they're people that have been transported against their wills to live there and in the surrounding area. So they're leaving, in some ways, the splendor of Babylon for an existence that is, in many ways, probably not as great. But as chapter 2 comes to a close, if we're reading Ezra together for the very first time, things are looking up, aren't they? God has miraculously moved on the world political stage to keep His promise to them. His people are being sent back having their room and board and transport paid for. They're going to be able to restore the altar and the temple. In this second exodus, they have been given a chance to start over. The people of God are back in the land, and there's hope in front of them. Jeremiah said, I got hope for a future. Maybe this is the time that God's people are faithfully going to live in obedience to him. We'll see how that goes as we progress through the book. But this morning, as we draw things to a close, I want us to see this principle from what we have considered today. The principle is this God faithfully fulfills his promise of an exodus for his exiles. That's the the overarching principle. God faithfully fulfills his promise of an exodus for his exiles. 
He had promised his people when they were in Egypt that he was going to deliver them in a mighty exodus and lead them out. He had promised his people that though the Babylonian empire was bearing down on them, after seven years, there was going to be a second exodus in which they could get out, where they would be delivered. And you may be asking yourself, what is a fair question at this point? That was a really long history lesson. Thank you to those of you who did stay awake for staying awake through it. What relevance? Okay, thanks. Cyrus did stuff. Those people had stuff happen to them. That's awesome. What possible connection is there to my life? What possible difference does this make? And I believe, friends, this principle that I've just laid out is just as true for us today as it was for them. God faithfully fulfills His promise of an exodus for His exiles. Let me explain what I mean by that along two lines. Number one, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have been born again, then you need to understand that we too are exiles. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are an exile. Because so many of us are living in comfort, we've forgotten that we live in Babylon. The book of 1 Peter in the New Testament reminds us of what you might call our exilic identity, our identity as exiles. It reminds us most clearly of our exilic identity. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, the book is addressed to those who are elect exiles. If you skip down in the same chapter of 1 Peter 1 to verse 17, it says, conduct yourselves with fear. This is speaking about reverence. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The next chapter in verse 11 says it again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What is a sojourner? A sojourner is a person who is in a place that isn't home. Perhaps for one reason or another, we don't remember this often enough because we're too God's people had been given specific instructions, as I mentioned, from Jeremiah. They had been given specific instructions not to rebel against the exile. In fact, God speaking through Jeremiah says this, which is pretty striking. He says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 to 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. We're talking in generational language here. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. What happens to Israel when they're in exile in Egypt? They increase and they multiply. That's one of the things that gets Pharaoh's attention. These guys are getting a little too strong. 
Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. That's a pretty striking set of instructions, isn't it? These captors that are going to destroy your home, rip families apart. I mean, let's not have a romanticized version of this where Daniel gets to get, he gets to move to Babylon and start a new job. It's not, it's not that. It's Babylon, it's Daniel gets ripped from his family, ripped from his home and basically told, hey, you get to be here or we'll kill you. It's not a promotion. God tells the people, your captors are going to rip you apart and they're going to take you to a place. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. If I could summarize God's instructions to them with one sentence, it would be this. God's people were to make themselves at home in Babylon without making Babylon home. They knew they were only going to be there temporarily, but they were to settle for the time period that they were there. And so some of them built houses and started businesses and put down roots. And we know both from the Bible itself and from sources outside the Bible that many of the people who had deported, been deported never came back because they had bought houses and started businesses. Only a remnant returned. I think there's a lesson for us here as well. As I've said, we too need to remember our exilic identity. We need to make ourselves at home in the good old USA while remembering that America is not home. Where to be good neighbors? Buy a house. Plant a garden. Get on the school board. Vote. Live peaceable lives. Submit yourselves to the governing authorities. As far as those governing authorities are not in conflict with God, we are to live fully in the world. But not lose sight of the fact that we're not of it. Great danger comes when we make a subtle shift in our minds and become devoted to the project of turning Babylon into Jerusalem. And you could point to example after example, after example in the church today of a church that has forgotten its exilic identity and is bound and determined to make Babylon Jerusalem. Build houses, plant gardens, bear children, but we aren't home yet. That leads me to the second point that I want to make. Not only are we too exiles, but we too, you too, are promised an exodus. The opening chapter of Ezra is interesting, as I said, because you can see these two perspectives of the same event. There's, there's, 
the stuff that's happening. There's the chess pieces that are moving on the global stage. There's foreign policy. There's intrigue. There's conquering. There's all sorts of stuff happening. But then the Bible opens up to the, uh, us up to the fact that there's this whole other level of stuff happening that, that includes the hand of God. Behind the global politics was the hand of God because Ezra chapter 1 starts by saying that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Cyrus didn't know that the Lord stirred up his spirit. He's just doing what the Cyrus cylinder says. But God was behind it. And the prophet Isaiah describes it this way for us in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1, which I think is just so poignant for us. He says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, okay? He called him a shepherd. Now Cyrus is being referred to as the Lord's anointed. This says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. In the Bible, what does the right hand signify? The right hand signifies power. The right hand signifies honor. The right hand signifies authority. The Bible tells us that our Savior Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now, the, power, the place of power and authority and honor. When the Bible talks about Cyrus, it talks about the fact that his right hand of power and authority and honor is being flexed in the world. But what does the Bible say about that right hand? It says God's holding it. Have you ever held a child's hand, walked them across a parking lot? I have had the good fortune to do that many times. Just yesterday, I was walking my four-year-old daughter across the parking lot, and I, she slipped her hand into mine when she got out of the car because she understood that we're in a parking lot. And as we weaved our way through cars and Across the way, I just held her by the hand, and I directed her wherever I wanted her to go, and it was not a challenge at all. I'm not the strongest guy in the world, but I am stronger than most four-year-old girls. <laughs> there may be one out there somewhere, and I'm never going to arm wrestle her because that'll be the most embarrassing thing in the world. But have that image of your mind, in your mind, and then think, the global superpower, Cyrus, God's got him by the hand, taking him wherever he wants him to go. We, as I've said, may be living in exile, but God has every world leader on the political stage by the hand. We may be living in exile, but God has Vladimir Putin by the hand. We may be living in exile, but he has Boris Johnson by the hand. We may be living in exile, but he has Kim Jong-un by the hand. We are living in exile. God's got the Taliban by the hand. We may be living in exile, but God has Donald Trump and Joe Biden absolutely by the hand, doing what he wants. None of them are going to be able to keep us in exile. Cheer. And none of them are our hope for getting out. Still cheer? Jesus is leading a new and final exodus. 
We can see this at the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and, one, 30, verses 30 and 31, where Jesus goes up into the mountain, and he's gloriously transformed. He's shining. It's this amazing thing, and the Bible says in, in Luke 9, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and, uh, and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Do you know what the Greek word for departure is? Exodus. Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah about the exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Jesus was about to, through his death, burial, and resurrection, rescue his people from the slavery of sin and deliver them from the wrath of God. If you are here with us this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, or you do not know what it means to be a Christian, the Bible tells you, because it's told all of us, that you bear the unflattering designation of being a slave. We don't like to think of ourselves in those terms. The Bible tells us that we are slaves in multiple ways. We are slaves of sin. You think you can own your sin, but your sin owns you. You think that you can do what you want, live by your own rules, and if you do that, you will finally be happy. But you keep getting what you want, you keep playing by your own rules, and happiness just never quite comes. All of us are like junkies. We are addicted to our sin. The Bible also tells us that we are slaves to fear and slaves of death. The clock is ticking. It seems more and more each passing day, we are confronted with the signs of our own mortality. We are confronted every day with what it means to try to have some sort of meaning in what seems like an ultimately meaningless life. We are slaves to sin, slaves to fear, slaves to death. And then a Savior comes and dies and walks out of the tomb alive, declaring that he has the intent of leading slaves to freedom. Which means you can experience an exodus that is more grand than being released from slavery in Egypt, more grand than Cyrus releasing them to rebuild the temple. You can receive a spiritual exodus where you are released and freed forever from the bondage of slavery and fear and sin and death. Jesus can lead you to freedom if you will simply repent of your sins and put your trust in him. For those of us who are Christians, I think all of us would recognize that we have not yet received the full liberation. Try as we might to transform Babylon into Jerusalem, it ain't working. And it's never going to. We're still sojourners and exiles awaiting a full and final exodus. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. There's no more night. There's no more corruption. There's no more injustice when we are living lives that are fully liberated. Can I remind you that we trust a God who puts his promises in writing? He put it in writing. Israel wasn't going to be under Egypt forever. He put it in writing that Israel wasn't going to stay in Babylon. 
The night of Belshazzar's party, he put it in writing on the wall. That's where that comes from, the handwriting of the wall. It comes from that story. He put it in writing that the time is over. You're done. He's put it in writing when he's promised to take us out of exile and home. Jesus said this in John chapter 14 and verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll email you every week. Now, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The hope that the Bible gives us is that we don't have to turn Babylon into Jerusalem because Revelation chapter 21 tells us that God's going to bring the new Jerusalem to us and it's going to be a new heavens and a new earth where he dwells with us and we with him. We are his people and he will be our God. So buy a house, start a business, plant a garden. Hold your grandkids, but keep a bag packed. Because we're going home. We're getting out. And you can take it to the bank because God puts every one of his promises in writing. And he hasn't missed one yet. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for the way ancient history intersects with our lives. That a book like this could have something to say to us today. I pray that you would help us to remember that we are sojourners here. I pray that you would help us to live faithfully as we sojourn and as we exile. But Lord, help us to remember that we're not home. Help us to remember that we're headed there. And Lord, for someone who has not been delivered from the bondage of sin and death and fear, would you deliver that person this morning? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.